Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, the world! Kill, a true crime podcast. I am Courtney Eck. And I'm Sadie Eck. And if you are like true forensic experts, you've probably figured out that we are sisters based on our names. I'm imagining people with <laughs> a wall with our two names. <laughs> it's like <laughs> red string <laughs> between them. <laughs> we are sisters. Um, we are like ravenous listeners of true crime and we both ran out of true crime podcasts so we decided we should probably start another one because yeah. for years we said there were too many or we, the world didn't need any more and we were wrong they, there cannot be enough there's unfortunately always more murder to talk about <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well you know, uh, just brought it down i was trying to make it a positive <laughs> and we were putting something out into the world that would make people feel good but yeah, yeah downside of this biz murder yeah. actual murder um so sadie's gonna take it from here we'll keep the banter limited uh sadie's gonna do most of the reporting of these cases because i think she's more likable than me um but we'll see we might switch it off if she's feeling exhausted by the burden of you know murder <laughs> <laughs> so take it away sadie all right, today we're going to talk about uh, the murder of Kelly Eckhart. So Courtney and I grew up in a little tiny town in central Indiana, um, and this is where Kelly's story takes place also. Uh, so it kind of runs closer to our hearts in some ways because of that, um, and I think it's definitely a story that should be honored. Um, yep. So I'll tell you a little bit about Kelly. <clears throat> So Kelly Nicole Eckhart was born on May 3rd, 1979 in Beach Grove, Indiana, uh, to her mother, Connie Sutton, and her father, Carl Eckhart. She graduated in the top 10 of her class from Triton High School, where she was a member of the National Honor Society and the Sunshine Society. Uh, and when I looked up to find out what, what the Sunshine Society was, their website uh, said that the high school club its goal is to, quote, scatter seeds of kindness among the old, the sick, and the needy, and to weave a golden thread of kindness through the everyday lives of all. <laughs> well, the funny thing about that is, is that I actually have all of that in vinyl over my bed. I just had it <laughs> commissioned. I put it up there to remember every day. Yeah. Like Kelly. <laughs> it's a good motto. <laughs> Uh, she was also a member of the Color Guard in her high school marching band. Um, and that also, I know, runs close for Courtney and I 
because yeah. we were both the marching band. And people. So she was known for her outgoing personality and her bright smile. Her high school band director described her as, quote, de- dedicated, friendly, outstanding, a model student, a great kid. Uh, she was a brand new freshman at Franklin College in Franklin, Indiana, and was a straight A student. I did Which is read... like, by the way, the literally probably the safest place in the world. Like Franklin College, Franklin, you know, is a very, relatively very safe place. But Franklin College, it's like if you want to, it's like sending your kid to yogurt college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you know? it's very sweet. It's small. It's very safe. You know, I don't yeah. know, probably like ten blocks big. That's the technical term. <laughs> I, I called it yogurt college. <laughs> Super well. Mm-hmm. Good um, so she was a straight A student, and I read somewhere that she uh, actually got into Franklin on an academic scholarship, um, which I don't think is easy to do there. So she was recently promoted at her part time job at the local Walmart. Um, Her manager said, quote, Kelly smiled all the time. She was always willing to help you out if you were in trouble. Um, And I did watch a few shows covering this case. And uh, one was Forensic Files. And I think the other one was a show on investigation discovery called Evil Lives Here. Mm -hmm. And they showed a lot of um, home video of her. You know, she was on rollerblades and rolling around (laughs) 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 smiling and she just seemed really outgoing and happy and um you know just sort of your typical 18 year old midwest girl um definitely something that we can relate to yep so on september 26th 1997 um at 10 p.m kelly got off work at walmart her boyfriend of two years, Anthony Evans, met her at the store uh, as she ended her shift, and they shopped for about an hour. Uh, one of the reports I read said that he, it was him and his mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went and met her after the shift ended. And just, again, it reminds me of being young and sweet. Yep. And, uh, uh, yeah, they met at the store, and they shopped for about an hour, but it was starting to get late, so the two decided to head home. According to Evans, Kelly got into her maroon 1990 Grand Am and drove away. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that was the last time she was seen alive. Mm-hmm. About two hours later, Kelly's car was found by passersby, abandoned by the side of the road. The car still had its lights on, and the keys were in the ignition, and her purse was on the front seat. So Frank, Franklin police officer Michael Moore drove to the scene and saw her car on the side of the road. The rear bumper had been damaged, but the car was otherwise fine. When asked, Kelly's mother said that she had not noticed the mark on the car before. Police searched the area, but they did not find Kelly. So the family held out hope that Kelly would be found unharmed. Police and volunteers searched the surrounding area for Kelly, but had no luck finding her. Over 8,000 flyers were printed and distributed throughout the state of Indiana. Um, over Over 200 people gathered from the community to hold a candlelight vigil hoping for her safe return Uh, and kelly's disappearance definitely rocked the close-knit community yep so three days later on september 30th sheila woodcock and pat burks were walking their dogs in camp atterbury god Um, always the dog walkers um so they they were in camp atterbury and just so you know a little bit about the area uh, camp atterbury is a World War II era army base. Uh, it's also County Park. And it's just south of Franklin, about 16 miles south, uh, in a town called Edinburgh, Indiana. 
it's very wooded and overgrown and rural. Um, a lot of people go there to hunt and fish. Um, yep. I know our parent, my dad, our dad goes there to mushroom hunt and, um, but it's, it's remote and. Yeah. Like uh, a trillion acres big, right? It's humongous. Yeah. 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 Really big. You can get lost there really easily. So while walking, uh, they found, unfortunately, they found Kelly's body lying in a ravine. They called 911, and Indiana State Police police Trooper J.D. Maxwell went to the scene. He found Kelly with her bib overalls down around her ankles. She was wearing her bra and panties, and her white shirt was tucked in the back of her bra. It looked as if someone had just sort of dumped her body in the ravine after she had died. God. Um, she also had... A ligature, which was made from her shoelaces and the strap to her bib overalls, mm. uh, it was around her neck. Ugh. Crime scene techs also found white and green fibers on Kelly's clothing. Um, so later, Dr. Ma- Michael Allen Clark conducted an autopsy and discovered that along with the ligature around her neck, uh, Kelly had also suffered a gunshot wound to her head. Uh, I know it. The wound wasn't a normal, like it wasn't made with a normal bullet. Mm. Um, And they they thought it could be caused by maybe a bullet made of wax or some sort of stun gun, maybe one that they use for livestock slaughter. Yep. Yep. Um, She also had numerous post-mortem abrasions, which was caused by dragging her body on the ground after she had died. Mm -hmm. Um, They found evidence of sexual assault and semen was found on her body. There was no evidence of defensive wounds, and it seemed very likely that Kelly remained unconscious until her death. Um, Mercy. For sure. He concluded that the cause of Kelly's death was ligature strangulation, and her time of death was estimated to be between 11 p.m. on Saturday, September 22nd, and 6.30 a.m. the next morning, the 27th. Um, So without any solid leads, police turned to the public for help. And they received over 800 tips into her murder. Uh, One of the tips told police that Scott Overstreet, a man named Scott Overstreet, had information on Kelly's murder. Um, And after bringing Scott into the police station, he tells them a terrible story. Scott tells the police that his brother, whose name is Michael Overstreet, uh, telephoned him sometime after midnight on the 27th. Uh, and asked him to come to a local motel in Franklin because his van had broken down and he needed a ride home. So I know this can get a little bit confusing because they're brothers. Um, And so from here on out, because they share a last name, I'm going to call Scott, Scott, and I'm going to call Michael over. I'm going to call him by his last name, Overstreet. When Scott arrived at the hotel, Overstreet approached him and said that he and his quote, girlfriend, had been drinking, and he asked Scott to drive him and his girlfriend to Camp Atterbury. You know what I would say to that if you called me in the Uh, middle of the night? Go fuck yourself. (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Scott gets into over... uh, Yeah, so Scott gets into Overstreet's van, and in the periphery of his vision, Scott saw something white back there in the back of the van. Uh-huh. Just something white. Just something white. He doesn't ask, as far as I can tell. He never says, hey, buddy, what what is going on with your yeah. girlfriend in the back of the van? It's just white stuff. Did you go to, did you go to yogurt <laughs> sausage and pick up? <laughs> oh, fill your van mm. with yo- yogurt? I really wish he had. <laughs> so while driving, Overstreet tells Scott that he had, quote, taken a girl 
and was going to take her into the woods and get her lost. Scott followed Overstreet's directions. And wait, he finally... wait, say that again. I'm sorry. I really actually was only kind of listening. He's taken a girl and wanted to take her into the woods and get her lost. Yes. Got it. Yes. That's what he told his brother. So he said, um, first he said it was his girlfriend. And then he's like, I, he did say, I have taken a girl. Yes. Got it. Yes. So Scott <clears throat> followed over street's directions and he finally stopped at a gravel turnaround at Camp Atterbury. Mm-hmm. Overstreet asked stop to, I'm sorry, Overstreet asked Scott to come pick him up in two hours, but he refused. So Scott. <laughs> oh my God, that's like the worst courier service. <laughs> like, <laughs> and the whole story is crazy. So uh, yeah, he said, can you come pick me up? And Scott said, no way. Um, so funny. I've got to get a girl lost. Can you come back at 2 a.m.? Yeah, I got some things I got to take care of. Um, so Scott says no, and then Overstreet says, okay, we'll tell my wife Melissa to come pick me up um, at the shooting range in two hours. Got it. Yeah. So according to Scott, he placed his hands over his face while Overstreet got out of the van, and after hearing the sliding door to the van close, uh, Scott drove over to Michael Overstreet's house. He's not going to be culpable if he does, like, doesn't see it. Doesn't uh, see it. Yeah, I guess. Like, yeah, it's like a baby when they think that you can't see them because they close their own eyes. Like suddenly, <laughs> an accomplice yes. to kidnapping and murder because exactly. your eyes deaf. They didn't yep. see or saw. It's also yeah. not, it's like if you don't see a robber's face, you know, and then they don't kill you because anyway, that's not yeah. super it, mental giant scenario that we're dealing with a couple of mental clients big time um so scott drove to overstreet's home and gave melissa uh, michael's wife the instructions from her husband um and then melissa drove scott back to his car at the motel so i think we should just pause for a minute and unpack that a little bit i was gonna say yeah so my question my number one question in all of this is Mm -hmm. why in the world, wouldn't Michael just drive the van yep. to Camp Atterbury by himself? I don't understand. Scott's it. van or his own van? No, because the whole time they were in, they were in Michael Overstreet's van. God. So why? So Scott said that he called him to pick him up because his van wasn't working, but then his van was working. Right. And they drove his van to Atterbury. Yes. And then, and yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. So there was never any, if, if, and I'm, I mean, luckily this is how the story plays out because we were able to f- figure out who did this awful thing to Kelly. Yeah. But if, if Michael had just taken her to Camp Atterbury, nobody would ever known yep. that he was with her. Yep. Except for the DNA, but we'll talk about that later. But, you know, it would have taken a lot longer. Yeah. There wouldn't have been other witnesses to his crime. And I just, I cannot for the life of me understand why he called Scott. I mean, if that's, a... I mean, and this is all just based off of Scott's story. And so maybe there's more to it. And, but, the, you know, um, so when Scott was done telling the story to the police, they brought him to the gravel turnaround where he had dropped his brother off. Um, and in the search of the area, they found Kelly's glasses, her hair scrunchie, her pager, uh, one of her necklaces, a locket, po- posts to her earrings. I mean, it's all circumstantial evidence, basically. Just right. kidding. 
God, dude. Yeah. So they, uh, they think that that's where she was attacked. Yeah. Um, and they bring in Overstreet's wife, Melissa, mm-hmm. uh, to see what she has to say. And she tells authorities that before driving to the shooting range, she searched the van and found several empty shell casings and a container of mace that she had never seen before. My God. <laughs> Ladies, dating advice real quick. If your husband needs you to come getting him at a shooting range in a trillion acre defunct World War II military base. Mm-hmm. At 3.30 in the morning. At 3.30 in the morning, you should probably, A, not be with that person, but B, not follow through with that chore. <laughs> right. Right. And there were no cell phones. He couldn't even, like, bug her and be like, hey, come get me. You just don't have to go. Yeah. You just don't. You say, no, I'm going to stay in bed. <laughs> I'm going to... <laughs> I'm going to pack up my children and I'm going to leave. But well, anyway. I mean, that would be the smarter choice. But right at 3:30 a.m., uh, Melissa drove to the shooting range where she found Overstreet sweating with his f- flannel shirt unbuttoned. Um, he was also carrying a blanket and had a rifle strapped over his shoulder. God, <laughs> I know. Imagine when they arrive home, Overstreet immediately went into the bathroom, and when he came out, he undressed and went to bed. Later that night, uh, Scott, so we're back to the brother, Scott, mm-hmm. he called his brother, he called Overstreet's house two or three times because um, he wanted his wife, who had gone over to their house to watch the children while Melissa went to go pick up Michael Overstreet at the shooting range. <laughs> so it's like a, <laughs> it's just a big revolving door of poor choices. So she was right. like, so listen, Melissa had to call listen. Scott's wife and say, hey, can you come Barb, my, yeah, can can you you come come over watch? and watch my kids? My God. And she said, okay. She went over. Um, Scott called Overstreet to say, hey, I need my wife to come home, please. And uh, during one of the calls, Scott told his brother that he had, this is quote, some, he had said some quote, uh, pretty fucked up stuff. And Overstreet explained to Scott that he could not get caught because he had children and a wife and that his, quote, girlfriend had a boyfriend and she lived with her father. Um, So apparently that's his reason. I I mean, again, it just doesn't make any sense. So I had to go dump her in the woods because she has a boyfriend and lives with her dad. And so that's why of them retaliating. (sighs) I don't know. Yeah. Um, So Melissa uh, said that so we're back to Melissa's story she said the following Monday Overstreet told her that he wanted to clean the van and by all accounts the van was really old and junky mm-hmm. um, and this is the only time that she can remember Overstreet ever wanting to clean it yeah, so, the, of course. so they pack up the whole family including their kids and they drive to a car wash where they spend about an hour cleaning and vacuuming the inside back of the van, the rear of the van. <laughs> and when Melissa, she said when she started to clean the front of the van, Overstreet told her not to worry about it. Yeah, that's, I mean, if you're going to spend an hour cleaning a van, you probably shouldn't clean the whole van. No, I mean, <laughs> definitely not where you would actually sit and like be. Yeah. Yeah. She also told police that the days after Kelly's disappearance, Overstreet watched the news with increased frequency he would sit in front of the television, flipping from channel to channel, watching the news coverage. And when a station was airing a story on Kelly, 
he would watch it. And after the story was finished, he would resume switching channels. God. And she I said mean, it. I don't, you know, not that this would have made any difference. And people now know what not to do to get caught for a murder. But this guy was like, he's, he is literally the reason that everybody now knows what not to do after you commit a murder. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> he did all of the wrong things. Yeah. She said even that he got to the point where he knew which channel was going to have the coverage over Kelly oh first. And so he would just go, you know, he'd start there and, and flip through. She also said that um, he suddenly wanted to start reading the newspaper, uh, which was unlike him. <laughs> and he, so she'd get the newspaper for him and then he would only read news articles concerning the case. And when he was finished reading the story, he would just stop reading the newspaper. I mean, it's not like you can't just like brush over the far side or something just to <laughs> pretend yeah. like you like anything but just to Kelly like he's clipping him out in front of his family <laughs> having his kids help him paste him into a book right. <laughs> <laughs> family fa- gather around having another family crime book hours up event <laughs> you guys did such a good job helping me clean the murder van I'd love you to help me build this scrapbook <laughs> oh, uh, so, based off of Melissa and Scott's stories, on November 7th and 8th, um, the Franklin Police Department executed a search warrant on the Overstreet's home. During the search, they seized a hand-drawn map of Camp Atterbury and the blanket that Overstreet had been carrying that night. Um, they also seized green carpet sample uh, from the van. Of course they did. Yeah. The fibers later matched to the, fa- the fibers found on Kelly's shirt and overalls. So the, the white fibers from the blanket and the green fibers from the van yep. um, matched. And the, offers all, the officers also measured the height of the van's front bumper and found that at 15 to 22 inches off the ground, it was the same height as the damage um, found on Kelly's car. I mean, I'm always so grateful for cases like this, though, that are just like, I mean, there is a 0% chance that this guy didn't do yeah, it. Um, exactly. Less than 0% right. chance. I mean, as a cop, it's just got to be so, I mean, frustrating because, God, dude, like, you're that stupid that you're, right. you you're did just... this without thinking about it at all. But at the same right. time, like, what a small mercy, again, to, for the family and the officers and everybody involved to, like, figure right. out who did it. And there's no and conclusively, right. yeah, right, yeah. I know. I would normally talk about like how the fiber evidence isn't really. They've figured out that that doesn't really count for much anymore. Yeah. Um. But at this point, it's just sort of another layer. Totally. Of that a huge mound. Of, yeah. Right. Like there's the murder huge... scrapbook that the kids built. That's. <laughs> <laughs> so on November 10th, 1997, Overstreet was arrested for the murder of Kelly, um, and. During the investigation, Overstreet told the police officers that he did not commit the crime and he had no memory of what happened the night of her murder. He never yeah. gave them any details of his whereabouts that night. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit now about who Michael Overstreet is. And one thing I want to say real fast, um, I don't know, something that Sadie and I've talked a lot about in preparing for this podcast is, you know, while we never, ever, 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 ever think that a killer's history is any sort of excuse for their behavior um, or like a glorification of them. I agree with other podcasters who say, you know, I don't want this to be about the murder. I want it to be about 
the victim. I 100% agree, but I do think in cases where we have a little bit of insight into how they grew up, I think it's important to talk about because, um, and we won't go too far into this at this moment, but, you know, we worked with a population of kids in, in college. We put ourselves through college working for a group home uh, for teenage boys with disabilities and emotional just emotional disturbances. And so seeing, um, you know, kids have the lives that these kids had and having to care for kids who are very hard to care for, um, you know, it's just really obvious to us that there are interventions that if interventions happen in these kids, in these individuals' lives, um, you know, Kelly Eckhart could not have been murdered, like, you know, and who that responsibility falls on that, you know, that's a much bigger conversation. But I do, I do always want to touch a little bit on like the origin of evil, because I think it's important. So absolutely. Yeah. And I think also the the boys that we worked with had terrible abuse backgrounds in a lot of cases too, which adds a huge layer of like empathy for what they were dealing with as you know for us dealing with them as children exactly um, understanding that a lot of their difficulties were because of poor parenting and not because of their mental health or disabilities exactly they they were not those people their actions were a result of um their upbringings for sure yeah Um, and i know for me my main one of the things i'm most interested with true crime is um, being a mother of two young boys how, what can I do to raise them with the most chances of them not murdering people in their future? So I, when I read these stories, I think, okay, I cannot do, I can definitely not abuse them terribly. <laughs> Check. Just take that one right off the table. Like as you're preparing, you're reading all the parenting books and you're like, right. oh, persistent yeah. abuse should not be something that I incorporate in a daily routine. <laughs> All right, well, let's get back to this piece of garbage. Uh, Michael Dean Overstreet was born on November 18th, 1966, to his mother, Mary Overstreet, and his father, Walter Earl Overstreet. Uh, He suffered from neglect and abuse as a child. His father was described as an abusive alcoholic who would regularly beat his wife and children. Walter admits to the abuse and says that once he broke his wife's nose and he would occasionally choke her. Oh, God. So Overstreet was often the target of of his father's abuse because he was the oldest child um, and his dad would punish him because he couldn't keep his younger siblings out of trouble. So he was known to. Okay. So, yeah. So he was abused by his father. And then he was also known to experience hallucinations. Um, Mm -hmm. The hallucinations included demons and devils. Mm -hmm. And this started for him at, at around the age of six and a half. Uh, He talked about these demons constantly and had trouble sleeping because he felt like something was trying to get him. Overstreet's mother, Mary, testified at Overstreet's sentencing hearing that he, quote, he had seen the devil at my mother's house. The devil was standing at the door. He was terribly frightened. He started having dreams, seeing shadows following him and having really bad headaches. Um, But despite she she took him to the doctor a few times during his childhood Mm-hmm. Um, but she refused medical treatment and instead oh, yeah instead she relied on faith healing um so she said in court quote i took him to church and i read to him constantly from the bible and i told him to pray for the demons to go away mm-hmm. and when asked why she refused medical treatment she said quote i didn't think he had a mental illness i didn't want to believe that god um, so she'd rather have actual demons 
following her six-year-old than believe it would be a mental illness. Yeah, or just try really a little, little therapy or a little medication, medication yeah. a little uh, sport, maybe to <laughs> roll the kid in some T-ball or something to save him. Yeah. Yeah, protect him from his abusive father. Right. Uh, so Mary testified that when Overstreet was 10, he was, quote, sitting down on the street on somebody's driveway with his skateboard at four in the morning, but he didn't remember how he got there. Oh, no. And there were similar odd events like Overstreet being found in places and having no idea how he got there. Um, And that occurred, quote, a lot of the time. She testified that at 15, the demons and shadows that followed Overstreet got worse. Uh, Sometimes he would leave school and come home, but he wouldn't remember how he got there. And so he would run into his bedroom and pray. In high school, Overstreet met his future wife, Melissa. Mm -hmm. And they dated for a few years before getting married. Um, Melissa says, and this is a lot of what I'm uh, referring to now is based off of the Evil Lives Here um, show I was talking about earlier. And that is, it was uh, based off of, it was mostly Melissa talking about her experience with, quote, living with evil. Um, And so she said that Overstreet was controlling in the relationship, uh, not allowing her to have friends. And he told her how to dress. Yep. He once brought a gun to school to threaten the boy who was talking to her in class um, and he, he ended up being arrested for that and um, the gun was found to be without bullets but uh, he was expelled from the school for the offense yep so after high school he joined the marines and hey guess what got kicked out yes you know why <laughs> that demons because no. of his mental illness <laughs> But I couldn't find detail. I don't think he was there for very long at all. If I, yeah. I don't have it written down, but I think it was like uh, three months or less. It was a very short amount of time. And they were like, oh, all right, buddy, you got, wow. you got some stuff you got to deal with. So the, uh, there was a doctor, Dr. Eric Ingham. He's a clinical neuro, neuropsychologist who was hired by the defense to evaluate Overstreet mm-hmm. um, during the, the hearing, the trial. He diagnosed him with psycho, psychotypal personality disorder, um, and that's character, characterized by odd beliefs such as superstitions, unusual perceptual distortions, which is another mm. name for hallucinations, mm-hmm. um, suspiciousness and paranoid ideas, lack of emotional response, eccentric behavior, lack of close friends or confidants other than immediate family, and social ineptitude. Check, 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 check. Yeah. I think that, he did do it. you know if that's something that's caused by like abuse or is it more of a genetic? Yeah, I don't know. Probably a combination of the two. Yeah. Like and I think it's a lot. It's, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's also very similar to like paranoid schizophrenia. It sounds like it. So he was arrested a few times in his 20s, but they were minor infractions like speeding, drug driving, public intoxication. Mm-hmm. Um, and into early into the marriage melissa noticed that overstreet had an obsession with weapons especially knives um he would sharpen and clean them religiously and he loved to take pictures of them maybe he put them in the maybe he put them in the murder scrapbook yeah (laughs) Uh, um during a fight melissa claims that he threatened her with one of these knives and cut her hand um despite all of this they had four children together and according to Melissa, he loved his children and he was a good father when they were little. Um, neighbors even described him as a, quote, ordinary guy who played outside with his children. 
uh, during the first few years of the marriage, they were mostly happy. But before too long, Overstreet's temper returned and he started to behave strangely again. Mm-hmm. Uh, he struggled to keep a job and he, he would use job hunting as an excuse to stay out all day and night. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melissa rarely, rarely knew what he did when he was gone and says he would often have paranoid delusions. Um, and as his paranoia paranoia got worse, she started to worry about what he might do when he was out of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, he once told her that he was a vigilante vigilante killer. Um, and he, he thought he was being watched by the people that hired him to kill. Uh-huh. Um, and he was worried that they were going to kill him and his family to keep the network of vigilante killers under the radar. So that's an example of one of his. Imagine, too, like being with somebody since high school and then being like um i'm pretty sure you haven't sneaked in a vigilante killer training (laughs) (laughs) the time that i've known you maybe i'm wrong maybe that failed uh, military attempt was actually like a crash course in vigilante killing training (laughs) but yeah yeah i don't think that's true chances are it's schizotypal personality or whatever it's called personality sort of um, so as his delusions got worse, uh, unfortunately, his abuse got worse towards Melissa also. Um, yeah. She claims that during arguments, he would choke her, and he one time fired a gun right next to her head as a warning. Um, Odd. Yeah. So after this fight, after the <laughs> gunshot fight, <laughs> Melissa left over street and filed for divorce in 1992. Mm. Um, but then during the the separation she was trying to get full custody of the kids mm-hmm. um, but her lawyer said that it was unlikely mm-hmm. that she could do that um and she was really worried about leaving her children alone with him yep. and she didn't have any of her own money so she decided to go back to him god uh, it's like uh, yeah sorry every time every 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 time right and it wasn't uh, very long after they got back together that he killed kelly god yeah on November 10th, we're going to kind of go, go back into the current story. On November 10th, 1997, uh, Overstreet was formally charged in Johnson County Superior mm. Court 2 with murder, and he pled not guilty. Mm. Um, so that was in 90, November 97. In March of 98, uh, a grand jury clears Overstreet's brother, Scott, of any wrongdoing doing in Kelly's case. Crazy. He must have had some sort of that. plea deal, I, right? I don't... I think that there wasn't... I, I think it probably it. was a plea deal of yeah. some sort, yes. Yeah. Um, I couldn't find a whole lot of information on it, uh, but I'm guessing that the prosecutors really, really wanted his testimony, and there wasn't any yep. physical evidence. There was, there was no DNA evidence tying Scott to the... Yep murder they were also um, like i but, mean he closed his eyes when he opened the door so right. <laughs> can't, you know that's mm-hmm. that, that old clause where if you, you don't see it didn't happen <laughs> can't be prosecuted right. can't no can't not culpable happened. on april 15th um johnson county prosecutor lance hamner which is a very solid name for a prosecutor as far as i'm concerned he decided to seek we the death penalty solid. He decided to seek the death penalty against Overstreet following uh, DNA testing that matched Overstreet to the semen found at the scene. Uh, The the charges include rape, criminal deviant 
conduct, uh, confinement, and, and felony murder. Good. Yeah. The trial is postponed by the defense for years, um, as is often the case. In yep. February of 1999, Overstreet attempts suicide in his padded cell at the Johnson County Jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and a little side note, too, I remember what I do. One of the things I remember from all of this back when it was actually happening is that our dad, actually, he was doing prison ministry at Johnson County at the time, and he met Overstreet. And so I was asking about about um, sort of that experience. You know, what was he like? And dad he he said he's basically said all of the things that have already been said but that he was out in quote la la land most of the time and he only came to the the church service three or four times um usually had a blank expression uh he didn't really seem you know angry or mm-hmm. quote evil yeah um he he would mumble when you, you talk to him he'd sort of just mumble uh and when I was sharing with dad about his background a little bit, he decided that maybe that's why he stopped coming to church was because it didn't really work well for him as a child to pray the demons away that, you know, he could understand better why maybe he didn't want to be. Triggery. Triggery for this guy. Yep. But no. So uh, Overstreet's trial finally began in May, on May 1st of 2000. Um, so he was in jail for quite a while, yeah. which I don't think is a very nice place to be. No, in jail, too, not in, prison. They in, kept him in right. jail. Yeah, that's... yeah, but not that I feel sorry for him. He can be there. As no. As, yeah. yeah. Yeah, stick him in a, um, stick him in a hole. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so... That said Lance Hanman, D.A. Hamman. Hamner. 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 Ran on the, ran on the uh, political platform. Stick him in a hole. <laughs> We're all like here. <laughs> like so the prosecution told the jury that based on the evidence, Overstreet was most likely sitting in the Walmart parking lot the night of September 27th. Yeah. Um, when he saw Kelly get in her car alone, he decided to follow her. And once they got to a more secluded road, he rear-ended her, causing her to stop her car and get out to check for damage. So this actually, excuse me, is. Uh, uh, one thing I do remember really vividly, so when this happened, I was 15, and then that following summer, I was in driver's ed, mm-hmm. and I do vividly remember Mr. Palmer was the teacher's name. He was, oh. he told me, or told the class, if you're ever out in the dark alone, and somebody rear-ends you, and you can still drive, you drive until you get to... Yes, Mr. Know. Palmer, that is yeah, solid advice. That yeah, is... don't pull over, don't get nope. out of the car, you nope. go somewhere where yes. there's other people around. Yes. Um, and I, I think that's pretty good, solid advice. <laughs> Ooh. Um, and so, yeah, he ran, he rounded her when she got out of the car and was looking for, uh, looking at her bumper over street approached with his rifle and shot her in the head, mm-hmm. uh, which knocked her unconscious, but didn't kill her. Yep. So then he drags her to his van places her in the back and covers her with a blanket. Uh, he then drove to the motel where he called his brother for help. Uh, Scott then drove them to Camp Atterbury and dropped them off at the gravel roundabout. And this is where Overstreet raped and strangled Kelly. Uh, he dragged her body to the ravine and dumped her there to be more concealed. Yes, so concealed. He's, God, this right. guy's worst. So then he, after dumping her in the ravine, he walked to the shooting range and waited for his wife to pick him up. Um 
during on the other side of the trial, the defense. <laughs> those, those guys, those poor <laughs> bastards, who really got it all mounted up against them. Oh God! So during the trial, the defense worked hard to discredit Scott's testimony um, and to accuse him of being the real murderer. I bet. Yeah, they brought up the immunity he received. Oh, there we go. So yes, he. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they brought up the immunity he received from the prosecution for his testimony, mm-hmm. and he was also a rampant drug abuser. So they talked about that. Yep. Um, Scott admits to, quote, smoking fifteen ma- marijuana cigarettes, <laughs> <laughs> and twenty twenty pipefuls of crack cocaine that day? that night that. <laughs> That night. <laughs> Is that even murder. like physically possible? I don't know. That's... I don't know. I have never smoked 15 marijuana cigarettes <laughs> or 20 pipefuls of crack cocaine I in one night. So I don't know. Ah, marijuana cigarette without not <laughs> feel my feet, arms, body, lips, head, no. brain. Thought. No. I'm a, no. I'm a rare. I mean, I don't think I'm that no. rare. But I'm like. 15. 15. Ay, 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 ay. And 20, yeah. 20 crack cigarettes. Yes. No, crack, ah. yeah, pipe, pipefuls of crack cocaine. Yes. Yeah, super credible. Yeah, so he says that, he, that's what he did that night, and that probably the drugs impaired his memory of the events of the night. Um, so he admits that the prosecution somewhat coached him on what to say on the stand, but mostly he stuck to the essentials of his original story that he told yeah. the police. So. Yeah. So on day four of the trial, Overstreet's wife, Melissa, testifies that Overstreet was acting strangely on the weekend of the murder, sort of what we'd already talked about. The defense demands a mistrial um, because Melissa, it's during the trial where Melissa tells the story about cleaning the van mm-hmm. uh, that hadn't that hadn't come out before. Uh-huh. Um, no, no. Right. So she hadn't told anyone until that day. <laughs> yeah, girl. I guess this kind of made... Old, old prosecutor Lance Hamner angry <laughs> and he calls <laughs> he calls the defense team you're gonna love this Courtney <laughs> he called him a student baker student makers so Lance Hamner <laughs> he calls the defense team quote stupid and quote lazy <laughs> fair uh, harumphed a lot too yeah sure. so he prosecutor so he got upset. loves to harumph in yeah. court right <laughs> so he's all up in arms because of the defense claims that they'd never heard this testimony before yeah um and so they yeah they demanded a mistrial uh the judge denies the request good good yeah. yeah so on may 13th after eight hours of deliberation um, jurors found Overstreet guilty of all the charges against him, and on May 18th, they recommend he receive the death penalty. Um, wow. Yeah, Johnson County Superior Court Judge Cynthia S. Emkes mm-hmm. agreed, and on July 31st, was sentenced. She sentenced him to death row. Wow. So, in sort of jumping ahead, um, November 2014. A uh, different judge, Judge Jane Woodard Miller, ruled that Michael Overstreet was not competent to be executed. Mm-hmm. Um, and lawyers for Overstreet argued that he was delusional and didn't understand the circumstances surrounding his execution. Yep. Um, the attorney general's office argued that Overstreet does indeed have a mental illness, but he understands he would be executed because of his crime. 
So with the ruling that, the, you know, with the judge ruling that he's not competent to be executed, um, it means that his conv conviction and his death sentence remain valid. Uh, but the death sentence cannot be carried out until and unless Overstreet becomes competent. And at this point, the Indiana Attorney General has decided not to appeal the, de the decision. Mm -hmm. um, so Overstreet's not going to be put to death mm -hmm. anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So in... Sorry, let's cut all that out right there. Nope, leaving it. You, you, you made your bed, now you've got to find it. <laughs> so now that we know that Michael Overstreet will rot in prison for the rest yep. of his life, Yes. Um, let's talk about some of the good that came out of this. Not that there's much, because Kelly really ought to just still be alive. Yep. Um, so in 2002, Kelly's parents fought for the passage of, quote, Kelly's Law, uh, which gives family members of victims the option to give impact statements at sentencing mm -hmm. hearings. Uh, so up until this point, in 2002, victims um, of crimes in Indiana couldn't do impact statements at trial hearings. Oh, they wow. weren't allowed to say anything. Wow. Um, so now they can tell convicted killers exactly how they feel. Is that that, federally or just in Indiana? I think it's just an Indiana law. Uh -huh. um, so that was something that Kelly's family couldn't do at, at his trial, at Overstreet's trial. God, imagine. I mean, I'm one of those people that sort of sickly fantasizes about telling, you know, like, oh, I should have told him this. And then imagine mm -hmm. that times like, 80 billion where you can't tell the person no stole your child from you no no them. yeah and how some, cathartic it must i mean it's jesus it's like a yeah, very tiny i can't imagine no no the other a couple months ago um my parents had my son in a car with them and they got hit by a guy who was drunk they think um <laughs> and when i found and everybody was fine but i found out about it yeah and i was so mad i was yeah. so mad at this guy for hitting the car that held my child yeah uh and fergus was fine he, there's no problem he was he was totally yeah. fine i cannot imagine yeah. what kelly's parents must have gone through yeah. to sit through that trial and this monster took their baby away from them and no. they couldn't face him and they couldn't speak no. i mean i don't know that i could have done that i cannot I imagine how hard that was very for strongly worded letter Oh, God. No. Yeah. <laughs> Awful. Um, so in the effort to pass Kelly's law, uh, no, I'm sorry. The effort to pass Kelly's law earned Connie, Kelly's mom, an honorary law degree from Franklin College where Aww. Kelly was attending. Um, and this Connie was quoted saying, when I walked down the center aisle at graduation with a cap and gown on, I felt like I was doing the walk for Kelly because she never got to do it. She loved that school. She wanted to go there more than anything. So I feel like I finished the walk for her. God damn it. The reason that I'm making you read these stories is because I will, I will cry. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> so sweet. Uh, so sweet. So <clears throat> that is the very sad, very unfortunate murder of Miss Kelly Eckhart. <sighs> well, you did a good job. <laughs> Michael Overstreet did a bad job. He did a really awful job. Yeah, Michael really... Overstreet's parents did a very bad job. Give the kids yes. some Risperdal. Give them some... Please. What else? Depakote. Depakote. <laughs> Give them some... We are doctors. So. Yeah. 
play some golf. Try it out. Um, Do we have any sources to cite before we go? Yeah, we will post those on our website. Um, Great. So if you want to check it out there, including links to the amazing forensic files that we all so dearly love. Love it. Yeah. So satisfying. 30 minutes done. Solved. Yes. Satisfaction. (laughs) Guaranteed. So easy. Yeah. Um, We also want to give a big shout out to AJ Bergantz, a dear friend who made our amazing music that we are obsessed with. So thanks, AJ. So much. Uh, Yeah. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Let's do this, people. Let's make it so that you have another podcast to consume ravenously like we do every day. We really hope to find your groove and be there with you every week. Yep. Uh, And remember, Uh, dance like nobody's watching. (laughs) (laughs) It might. We'll just see if it sticks. Might. All right. It might be copyrighted though. So. Yeah. I will be sad if we can't dance. I know he's watching. Is our sign off? Our catchphrase. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.